This is a Media 8 production. This podcast may have explicit themes and swearing and may not be suitable for children. The first beer goes down easy. It's bubbly, it's sweet, tickles the back of your throat. The second beer, you're starting to enjoy it. You kick back, getting a bit more relaxed. But it's the third beer, Brent. That is. It's the third beer there where you hit that vibe, a certain mellowness comes over. It's a golden light nectar, I would describe. The pub turns into a very happy place, and you've hit that spot that's just right. And our third beer is a special guest each week that we get to interview and have a chat to not only about the beer, but also about life and other stuff that men don't talk about. I'm Brett McCallum. I'm Chris Dixon, and we'd like to talk about the third beer. Well, viewers and listeners out there today, we've got an interesting kind of scenario. Big fellow uh, is out of the house, and we have a new a fellow co-host by the name of Master Kieran Byrne. Good to have you back, buddy. How are you doing? Mate, it's fantastic to be back. Yeah. Uh, second time around, a lot less nervous. A lot less nervous. Feeling the flow, feeling the flow. Should be good. So how's your week been, mate? What's been happening since we last chat? Uh, it's been a pretty fantastic week. Um, was able to win state champs with uh, my high school team, St. Yeah. James College. Congratulations. Yeah, back-to-back champions. So uh, everyone's pretty pretty happy with that. It was good. Celebrations. Lots of celebrations. A lot of hard work. A lot of hard work. The kids all stormed the stormed the court and did a lot of dancing. So it was fantastic. Did they get a bottle of um, or a bucket of ice over the coach? No, no. Basketball Queensland is really strict on that. No, uh, no ice. No Gatorade. What's happening but, um, with the world, man? Slippery floor. It's just too much. It. Too much to handle. We're placed on safety. So, but yeah, no, it was fantastic and. Um, Everyone's really happy and, yeah, just a lot of congratulations all around. A lot of hard work. So how's your week been, Chris? <laughs> that was interesting. And probably my week's been pretty good, buddy, actually. Uh, busy, busy, busy. Got a lot going on. Um, flat out, taking on a new role at one of my uh, places where I work, which is uh, we'll talk a bit about that today, which is an interesting experience. Um, a bit more responsibility and uh, blah, blah, blah. Bit of hectic. But, uh Mate, just roll on with the punches. And I think that's what we're going to talk about today. But a very interesting guest, uh, Dr. Kelly Bowers, who's a, uh, my uh, my boss and mentor and an all-around good bloke. So, uh, you know, he's uh, we're here to talk about performance, but we'll get into that in a minute. I'm going to introduce him properly. But I'm, we're having what I thought would be interesting today is to go back to a classics and seeing we're talking about performance I thought we'd bring in the old boy, the engineering masterpiece, which is the Guinness Draft. I'm trying to look for the read. I don't usually do this. This is usually the big fella's job, but I can't even see where it is. Anyway, Guinness is a beautiful beer. So what we're going to do is we're going to crack it. I know that you don't drink, Master Burn, because you drop dead in front of us, which that's is, that, I think that's a good reason not to drink. Straight waters. But I'll, uh, I'll have a click at the can. Oh, geez, that sounded all right, didn't it? All right, Kelly, you going to crack one? I'm not today, mate. You're I, not today. I, I normally would. Right. Uh, I'm a fan of the Guinness, but I'll, I'll have to uh, put on the, keep it on the shelf today, I think. Well, I, might, I might be having three. Make an interesting <laughs> podcast, won't it? Mate, so uh, welcome, Dr. Thank Kelly. You. Here you are. Cheers. You've met Kieran. Kieran's met you. We have, oh, Hello, yes. hello. Yep. Um, two men, that uh, two professionals, two psychs. We've got three psychs in the room today, which is quite interesting. Very interesting. We'll see where this conversation goes. But, uh, mate, uh, in regards to uh, your life and your career, what do, you, what do you want to share? Tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, right. Okay. Uh, well, we obviously work together. We, we have, We've yeah. known each other for, what, nearly three years. Three? Yeah. I thought a bit more than that. Three years. Yeah. It's the code, the date, my start date's my uh, entry code to the computer. So oh, that's there you I go. You're, you're on top of it. <laughs> I know how to get into your computer now. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm uh, going to change it now. Uh, yeah, no, so we've known each other for a few years and, um, yeah, it's been interesting experience getting to know each other, I yeah, think. It's uh, funny. People often say that about me, don't they, Bernie? It's, inter- <laughs> it's an interesting experience. <laughs> yeah. No, look, in all seriousness, I, I love working with you, mate. You are, you give me a different perspective and things and, and make me think about things in a slightly different way, which is why I'm excited to be here today and chatting to you in a different kind of forum. Thanks, mate. Thanks for coming along. No worries. Uh, Byrne, do you want to share anything about yourself today as, as co-host and co, uh, co-presenter? co No. What's going on in your world? I think this is um, 
think the psychology thing is going to be really interesting. Uh, having three people with three different perspectives, really talking about um, yeah performance and how that affects um, yeah and how how that can be I guess influence would be really cool. So yeah, really looking forward to hearing uh, Kelly's perspective and as always yours is um, so let's challenging. Shall we start off with a bit of a Socrates dialogue? You know, I like to be a little bit of a Socrates. Socrates, the 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 fly that bites the ass of the ass, yeah, gets the things moving way. around. What is performance, boys? I mean, I think there's a lot of things in psychology now. There's a lot of uh, self-help stuff. There's a lot of people trying to motivate. I'm really interested in the idea of competitive sports, but also being a parent or just being the parent uh, or a role model or a psychologist or just getting up in the morning and making the bed. I think performance is all around a very interesting topic. So uh, I'll be interested to see where it goes today, but I'll leave it to the floor. I mean, uh, Bern, what do you think performance is? And then I'll let Kelly respond to that. Yeah, I think I think for me it's just um, being able to do what you're capable of doing. So be whatever you've practiced that level, whatever your uh, skill level is, being able to perform at that level um, under pressure um, with all the other outside influences going on, being able to actually execute that, yeah, that skill level. That's what performance is to me. So performance is the execution of your current skill level. Wow. All right. So I'll work that down. It's a nice definition. Mm. Kelly, what would you say? What yeah, is performance? I'd agree with that one. Yeah. Fulfilling your potential, working to that ability ability that you have. Um, take a little step further, being confident in doing that as well. Um, I, the little bit of research that I've done recently is telling us that uh, just because people are performing at their best doesn't mean necessarily that they are feeling the best within themselves. Uh, and you know, the, the hangover effect, I guess, if you like, after, after success and sport is finished, um, you know, where is that leaving some of our professional athletes? So I think that's a, a big discussion piece that's happening in, in the world of sport, particularly in Australia at the moment. Uh, and something that I think we should all continue to talk about. And I love talking about that echelon of performance. Of course, I'm going to disagree with both of you because I think, um, performance is basically having a go. Mm. See, I don't even think it's work. I don't think you can work to your optimum. I don't even try to work to my optimum. Sometimes my optimum manifests all by itself and then other times it disappears. And I think as coaches or as, as a therapist, we try to pe- put, put people the positions to be in the zone, but I'm not sure they work. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> here we go. That's I, what I, you do, Chris, you always, you know. I, I don't know. I don't know how performance occurs. I know sometimes I hit the sweet spot. And other times I don't, and sometimes I can put things in place and it happens, and other times I do exactly the same thing and it doesn't happen, and other times I'm in a shitty place, and other times I'm not actually reaching my performance at the level that I have grown accustomed, but at the same time, there's a lot of shit going on, so I'm probably performing better than I should. So can your potential change at any given point? I would suggest yes. Mm. So when we use words like optimum, what, what do we really mean? It's really a kind of relative turn to the, the context of moment. I think what we've got a very interesting scenario with the Conor McGregor kebab fight, you know, the UFC 229, 229 coming up. And we've got a guy there that eats pressure. But we've got a in Conor McGregor, but we've got a wrestler that's never been beaten 26 fights. So mm. there's this pressure. And, and who's going to bring it off in the moment? But I mean, how do we put ourselves in that position? What, what tips do we have tips? Is this what you guys do now? This is your bread and butter. You guys preach this stuff. So I'm interested to, to, to you know, for you to inform me how I might improve my performance. Take it away. Jump in. <laughs> We're all looking at each other. Yeah. <laughs> uh, like I think, I, I don't know. I'll, I'll, I'll jump in. I don't think that, um, I think what you said actually is probably the most um, practical way to, to look at performance um, and that, if anything that that I try and do as a coach is um, get kids to realize where they're at that day and what they can do that day. So, for example, if they're not scoring in basketball, if they're not scoring very well, can they play defense? Do they have the effort? You know, acknowledging that some days aren't their best days and saying that, okay, you know what, today's just not a good day. You know what I mean? Just sit on the bench and just, you know, breathe and tomorrow will be better and coming back. And then over a tournament, you know, making sure their confidence, which is what um, Ko was saying before, is maintained and knowing that all the hard work they put in um, is going to lead to some performances that are closer to their optimum 
if circumstances provide. But um, as a coach, really being able to um, manage kids' expectations of themselves all the time so that they are continually performing at their best given the circumstances and given, as you said, sometimes they're not feeling very well. Sometimes for whatever reason, they just can't get it right. Sometimes um, the game flow isn't to their advantage um, and it's just a grind. And, you know, what can we do in those moments? So I think as a coach, I'm trying to, yeah, acknowledge all of those factors and then make that individualized to that person at the time um, and allow them to, yeah, have confidence in whatever they can do then. I I agree. And I think it's just to summarize that, I think it comes down to self-awareness. Ooh. Ooh. Slipping into some interesting space now, Master Gill. Right. And and I and I'll put it to you, Chris. You know, yeah. when you as you described how some days, you know, your optimum and your performance is different, you know, I, I was gonna ask you, why do you think that is? Why do you think you're okay with that? Why what yeah, that's interesting. I think that's how I've learned to optimize my performance by not giving a fuck about the outcome. I think the way is to let go of any sense of I need to achieve a certain level and allowing it to be what it is. So it's very organic. But uh, again, I you can't necessarily rely on that either. Yeah, so I'm curious to know how you guys use this in your day to day life as as an apparent and uh, as a parent of four and uh you know i know you've been through some interesting spaces recently master kel master sorry master well, I, actually i do yeah, know I, that master kel's been through some interesting spaces and i actually know that you've been through some interesting spaces too ben how does this apply to your life and who you are um i don't know i might just pass it on uh think about it if that's okay yeah yeah, he's yeah no pass it okay. you've been through some stuff girly yeah look you know i've uh i've done a little bit of listening to the podcasts that have been on um, prior to this one. Um, and I was trying to think about how do I, what can I offer? How do I fit in this space? Cause I don't, I don't necessarily think I've got a uh, very challenging life story or anything. I haven't really had to overcome any adversities and, and whatnot. And, you know, I think that's actually a, a pretty special thing and something that I'd, I'd like to maybe talk about further today in that uh, I've had a, you know, grew up in a, a, um, working class family, um, both parents worked full time and, and, you know, worked really hard to, to achieve anything that we had. And, and, you know, we, we valued that and appreciated everything that, that we were able to, to have as a family and, and whatnot. Um, but the biggest thing that I appreciate from my life and what my parents gave to me was opportunity to explore lots of different things. Um, they didn't, they didn't care, you know, if I chose one thing or another, they, they gave me lots of, um, diversity and, and, and a wide, breadth of, of experiences for me to choose and, and to take on. So from that, I feel like I've got a, a fairly good sense of who I am. Um, I feel like I'm self-aware, I'm self-assured and, and confident in what my abilities are. And from that, you know, I feel like my performance is in lots of different things that I do, whether it's professionally at work, whether it's playing sport, oh, Kelly, whether it's hanging out with mates. You're an overachiever in many areas of your life, you know, pumped out a PhD, a clinical director, just professionally, you know, I mean, it's, it's really amazing. Your parent, husband, um, you know, yeah, branching off into, into different spaces now. Um, you've been through a lot of adversity, I think. I mean, the idea for me, a PhD would be an Everest for me. I mean, I'm not naturally academically inclined. It would be a hard slog. And I have a, a deep respect for anyone that's been able to pump four years, including your master's, uh, Muscar. I mean, that's that takes effort. That takes resolve. How did you keep punching through that? I remember you telling me stories where you'd have a 20-minute nap at a mm-hmm. uni library and, yep. and, and go for another three hours yep. just to get through. I mean, that's a, an inner resilience, would you think? Is this a family dynamic? Where inner do you think resilience, that comes? yeah. Um, it comes from balance, I think. Just being able to balance all those different roles and, and different parts of, of who I am and having that self-awareness of, all right, I need to, I'm not operating at my best now. I need to take a break, step back, do something different or, okay, this is the time where I'm doing well. Let's let's go at it and, and see what we can achieve. So that self-awareness of how I'm performing in the moment is critical Absolutely. to you shifting and 
changing strategy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. okay. You had an interesting parent, uh, an interesting parenting moment the other, the other week. Are we, are we able to talk about that one? Yeah, we can talk yeah, about that, uh, absolutely. Okay, so you're, at, you're at home with your lovely wife and, and your beautiful little girl and then uh, what, what, what happened? The little little girl took a fall off a, off a stool. Which kids um, do all the time. Which kids do. Yep. I uh, had a decent whack to the head and look, she's not a, she's not a kid that, Gets upset by too much, doesn't cry all that much. But the irony was you're telling me how amazing her balance was just a couple of days oh, well, before. That's that. just it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and, that, and that's probably that's probably why she's in the position she was in because you know Dad got a little bit overconfident, yeah, overconfident in, in her yeah. ability. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it took a bit of a tumble and and, and a decent kind of whack. And um, um yep, keep going. Keep going. Yep. yep. Um, and yeah, realised that she she was bleeding a fair bit out of her ear. Um, got a bit concerned about that. Uh, and obviously, yeah, got the the ambulance came, spent the day in, in ED. But uh, cons- luckily, she was you know cleared of any head fractures or anything like that. Um, but just put things in perspective. A lot I want to break us. this down. I want to break this mm, down. Okay, yeah, this is intense because I want to I want to know the agony because I'm I'm thinking the fear yeah. and the, the scared emotion as she's hit and you've heard the thump and you've picked her up. I mean, how do you perform then at that sure. moment? Yeah. Oh, look, I guess uh, if we're being honest in yeah, that yeah. in that that uh, high stressful panic sort of situation, it's not when I'm at my best. That's my my wife is absolutely unbelievable in in those emergency type situations. Um, but for me personally, uh, wow, um, that idea that my little girl might not be the same person as she was earlier in the morning, um, if she had some kind of head injury and whatnot. And, and I think as I was saying to you earlier, Chris, if she had lost 1% of the personality of who she is, that would have been um, quite devastating to me because I love every part of her in, in every way. Yeah. So that happened instantly? It did. She's bounced. Bang on the floor, and, and you're instantly, oh my god! Uh, no, actually, actually, because she's fairly resilient, and she takes a few tumbles and whatnot every now and then. Um, probably didn't think it was as serious as it was to begin with. You know, she was having a bit of a cry and whatnot uh, at first, and thought she was all right. But when things didn't settle down, uh, the longer it went on, the the more sort of stressed and panicked, I guess, I became. Yeah. Okay. And how did you how did you work through that? Did, you, did any of these uh, performance strategies we're about to talk about? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I think um, I was certainly aware of my own physical response that was going on. Um, beating a hundred miles an hour. Heartbeat was going mm-hmm. going a mile an hour. I was uh, starting to get that, those trembles and whatnot, and I could feel my my voice starting to to break a little bit quiver. here and there. Quiver. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I was really aware of that, and just uh, knew that the the moment required me to be performing better than being a, a shaking mess in the corner. So um, was having that awareness was able to pull that back a little bit and focus on the next task, the next thing I needed to do. Next task. Mm. I think that that's something right in there. Take a breath, calm the farm. Calm the farm. Next task. Next task. Next task. How do you respond to that, Burn? Now you've you've had your own parenting journey. Yeah. Um, so I guess it's similar. Um, I guess, I don't know if I talked about last podcast, but, uh, yeah, my, my daughter's had some health issues and uh, – I still remember uh, when I was driving some kids home and uh, yeah, my wife called up and said that um, yeah, my daughter, oldest daughter, was having seizures and um, they wouldn't stop. And, yeah, it was pretty tough. And, and you know, you just sort of do a long way away and you can't do anything and just say, oh, I remember just saying, just call the ambulance and I'll be there in 10, 15 minutes. And, yeah, I think that um, when that happened, like, yeah, I was just calm, um, wasn't worried about it. Uh, I was just like, hey, what can we do? Just tried to, I guess, wake her up or just um, see if she's all so right. So you went straight into task mode? You yeah, there's nothing let, else. You didn't let the fear or panic there was seep no in? fear or panic. It was, it was, I knew that it wasn't good. I knew that um, yeah, it, was, it was extremely serious, but there's nothing I could do at the time except to, um, yeah, pack a bag for hospital and, and get ready to see what was next and wait for an ambulance and um, – because I think I think just going back to it, the the first time any, I didn't see any seizures was with febrile seizures. So uh, same daughter uh, had really high temperatures, forty degrees, and um, she she um, started seizuring, which is as we found out later really common. And um, didn't really understand what to do. And I think the the hard thing was not knowing what to do in those situations. So really, you're sitting there and 
yeah, similar situation where all these you know negative thoughts go through your head, and you're like, okay, what is this? Why is she seizuring? She's not responding. She's dead because um, you know the breathing sort of stops, and you know how do I cut, cool her down? Is she overheating? Because you know nothing. So there's a lot of in that moment trying to work out what to do to fix the situation. It focusing on the task and what I need to do help remove you from the angst and the fear of what was happening. Um, no. So that was that was completely present. So that was a hundred percent at that time, that first seizure. The whole Ugh. thing. But it was just a matter of doing, I guess I said, trying to find something to do to uh, help that situation. So that was really in, in, in what Kelly was saying, um, really interesting actually. Like I guess you can respond automatically in a lot of different ways. But for me it was just, okay, you know, do the worst thing you could have done and put her in a bath to cool her down, which is what you're not meant to do. You're meant to put her, you know, um, keep it warm. Keep it warm. But um, look. You started to think through the process. Yeah, well, no, no, just like randomly, just trying to find whatever I could to try and, you know, make this right. Like there was, there was no <laughs> logic. It was just, you know, she's hot, make her cold. Like is she breathing? Not. Like calling the ambulance up, what are they saying? So, yeah, the second time, so she went to hospital and they said, yeah, you know, like unless she seizures for like 10 minutes, it's not an issue. Anyway, so the second time she was seizuring for like 10 minutes. So you kind of knew that um, but at that stage I was like, oh, maybe it's the same thing. I'll just go with that. So it's was kind of denial. I was like, yep, this is fine. Never it, underestimate uh, the power of denial. That was a wonderful <laughs> or, thing. Or a good task. <laughs> I um, I had a, an experience with my little boy once. We were having Maccas out in the front yard and uh, he's uh, playing around with the ice in the jar and he takes a big swoop and gets a bit of ice stuck in his throat. Yeah. He's coughing, coughing, coughing. He can't get up. And my wife's, uh, wife's, wife's a nurse and uh, she's freaked. And I'm thinking, okay, I've got to get him a warm cup of water. Yep. Get him to have some water. We'll melt the ice. It'll be all good. And she's thinking his throat's blocked. Get and fucking ring an ambulance ASA right now. And I, I've stopped and hesitated for a moment. She just yelled, gone right into kind of clinical space. And it was just interesting for me to experience. I was like, there is no time to think about it. You've got to, you've got to do something. What you know? did you do? He it it dislodged. Melted. At the same time, though, he had some eating issues <laughs> for the next 10 years. So he was a very, very difficult eater. And I do wonder whether or not that moment actually triggered that from a psychological perspective. So we've got these moments as parents and we feel this angst, we feel this worry, we feel this concern, we find ways to work through it. How does this relate to performance at work or performance at sport? You know, I love the little uh, goal kickers for NRL, always fascinate me. Mm-hmm. They've all got their own little ritual. Have you noticed that? There's Absolutely. a tap of the year. There's a bang. That takes it. They, they are not like me where I walk up to every kick with, I wonder how I'm going to kick this ball. <laughs> what should I do right now? I, I'm not sure. Should I stand here or stand there or go back? They've got a set process. Is this what you guys do as sports psychologists? Are you guys going, okay, there's a set structured ritual that you need to follow every time so we can alleviate anxiety and fear? Um. I think in some situations there are, uh, in, in certain situations, like a goal kick that, you know, you've practiced hundreds of times, you've practiced that angle, you've practiced that distance. There's a lot of factors that you can control. Um, having a set routine limits as many, um, I guess, variables as possible. So, you know, free throw shooting in basketball, similar, uh, set kick in AFL would be similar where, you know, as I said, the angles, the distance and all those things. And if you can get into a rhythm, get into a routine and you can rely on that, then, um, you know, you're probably more likely to be comfortable and confident in what you're doing and therefore hopefully have a better outcome. So the whole ritual and process is to relieve anxiety and fear, control the controllables, Build, build confidence if you want to go more positive way. If you forget anxiety and fear and you concentrate on what you can do and you can control, then and everything else becomes fades away. I think as soon as you start thinking about anxiety, fear, missing, winning, whatever, then all of a sudden you're distracted anyway. So but same thing, Kelly? Same thing, absolutely. And it's yeah, it's much easier with those closed skills like you've just mentioned. Uh, what are they called? Closed skills. Closed, closed skills. skills. I love a little bit of jargon. There nice closed skills. Let's work on the closed skills. Closed skills. And these are the controlled controls. Yep. Okay. Where it's just you, you've got most control over as, as a, a large number of variables. Um, there's not, you know, different blokes running at you from different directions and uh, other stuff going on. It's just you and the ball and the goal or the ring or whatever it is in that moment. 
And so do you relate it back then to your you, your bigger goals and schemes of life? Why am I? Because um, I think there's infinite variables, which makes my job as a psychologist difficult. <laughs> 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 so how do you how do you work that with a client how do you work that with yourself in a, a work sense or uh, whatever sense when we want to perform um look i guess that as kieran sort of sort of pointed out controlling what you can control um there's some things that are out of your control so how much time do we want to spend worrying about those um and we can prepare for them. We can, you know, think about all the possible alternatives. But like you said, the, infant, the variables are infinite, aren't they? Um, but I guess for me, it's about having that stable base and stable core of, of where you're at so you're able to adjust and um, manage different stresses and challenges that do come up. If you're really self-assured and, and certain about who you are and, and what you're trying to achieve, a minor setback here and there in a game or in, in a work sense shouldn't rock you too much if, if you're really, truly comfortable in, in that space. That See, I, my dad's here. like this and I call him and he's a, he's a mad uh, a rugby league guy and you know, oh. played to a certain level as a kid, but he's still 40 years later still obsessed with it. But I call him Teflon man. Okay. Nothing negative sticks. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> any negative feedback or any drop ball, no, <laughs> that, that kind of didn't happen. <laughs> I'm still as good as I think. Do you know, which I think. It really helps people to sure. be successful. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. They can just not take the negative on and, and really focus on the positive each and every moment. I think you've got a, you've got a choice there. You do control that. You do control what you put in. Oh, man. And I, and I like mental health that game, that's very interesting. It's a choice. That's good. I'll use an analogy for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The one that I do use with my clients. Yeah. So uh, what's your favorite meal, Chris? As a vegetarian, um, I love a good uh, Indian korma. Yeah, Indian coma. Cool. All right. If I came up to you with a plate of dog food and said, eat this, what are you going to do? I'd say you first. (laughs) Are you going to voluntarily (laughs) put that in your body? No. If you did, how, how would you kind of be feeling inside if you did? Uh, curious, I suppose. Okay. What does dog food taste like? I mean, I don't know. I'm going to go in with this an open mind. I'm, I'm right. assuming as my therapist, you've got a real, real intention behind this. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Curious. Sure. Yeah. All right. You're always, he always turns it, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he gives you that simple. different perspective. <laughs> and, uh, and disgusted if you force fed me yeah, and I'm feeling a bit grumbly in the tumbling and it's sure. not nice. Yeah. 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 Let's, let's keep it simple for okay. uh, nice. uh, oh, right. example. Okay. So, yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Good work. Uh, but if we offered you that, that Indian korma, the likelihood is you're going to be feeling, you know, satisfied or, or pretty good. Or, oh, yeah, yeah, afterwards. excited. Yeah, sure. So I liken this, you know, with food, we tend to make that choice, don't we? If someone offered us dog food, we're going to say, no, thanks. I'm not interested in that. But is it the same with the communication, the thoughts, the feedback we get from, from other people? You know, we do get a choice of what we're going to accept, what we're going to take in and, and what we're going to say, hey, you know what, thanks very much, but, you know, I don't need that. I don't need to accept that. I'm not interested in, in that feedback that you're giving me here because it's not going to help me or make me feel all that good or productive from, from inside. Wow. So you're talking from a broader perspective, you know, how I like to move in and out of the mm. infinite. Um, resilience is a choice. Yeah, I believe so. Wow. What you yeah, no, I agree. I agree hundred percent. I think that we have, um, uh, habits that we've built up over a long period of time and maybe some, um, you know, predispositions that you just got your go-tos. And I think that, um, some people find certain aspects of resilience easier than others. Um, uh, but in the end, it's definitely a skill that can be learned and, uh, be able to control your thoughts, um, and being able to recognize your emotions and stuff is a huge um, skill and attribute that everyone can work on. So, because um, that's performance, isn't it? Self awareness to understand where you're at, and the and then the, the dream and the desire to know where you want to get to, and that's that chipping away, isn't it? I, yeah. I kind of think that's what performance is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I've I don't I, think you ever get there. I think it's like pursuit of happiness or the pursuit of excellence. It's a, it's an endless journey. The journey is the pursuit of happiness, yeah, yeah. Or, or or performance. Like it's a it's a the journey is the performance. So even when you win or you, you're mega successful, you know if that was your if that was your crowning glory, 
then straight after that, you're going to feel a sense of disappointment because what, what do I, I do that. next? Yeah. But if, if climb the, in Everest and shit, I'm at the top and the dust, it's, it's a long way down. Yeah. <laughs> and then what? I've spent four years doing this. <laughs> Which is what we're finding in yes. elite athletes at the moment, right? And this is that, that, that topic of conversation that's happening around the place. Um, there's a stat that I'll share with you now, which is quite interesting. I find 73% of athletes that exit sport exit with a mental health condition. 73%. That's a lot. That's a lot. And then couple that with 90% of those tend to go back into coaching. 90% of the people that feel disappointed, which is 73% go full circle back into the game. So we think about from a, uh, a position where we're trying to develop resilience in our sporting culture, um, that sporting identity, and with our young people, um, that's an interesting space, I think. You know, we've got a lot of people who are exiting sport not feeling great and they're going back in that headspace, perhaps coaching and, you know, perhaps per- perpetuating that cycle a little bit. I think we're part of the problem. Agreed. I think that, you know, we're, you know, my boy's 10 years old and it's almost like he needs to choose a sport now. Mm-hmm. If you want to be good at something, you've got to choose whether or not it's going to be surfing, football, whatever it is. There's a pressure. Absolutely. And I'm seeing young kids, if his age group, starting to really, I want to be good at, I want to achieve a certain excellence at this. And you and I, we all know, we've been around. Well, half of these kids at 16 are going to not be doing what they were doing before. And 20, I mean, it's fascinating. We don't just do it for the love of it. There's this this outcome or goal. I think it's a big part of Australian culture, isn't it? You know, sport, I feel, is Australia's religion. It's it's what we worship. It's what we, you know, our main church as a as a collective group is at a sporting ground uh, or at a sporting club. That's where we go. Uh, well, I know it's a religion from you. Well, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. In, 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 in some respects. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to deny that. Yeah. Um, Are you picking in the in a, in NRL? NRL. Yeah. Uh, look, I'd, I'd, I'd like the Storm to win. Like Storm, yeah. yeah. I wouldn't mind Kronk getting one back. I don't know what that is about that story that I wouldn't want that happening. I would, I would like to like to see that as well. That'd yeah, be great. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But he's got another year, so he can get it next year. <laughs> Good. Yeah. Um, sorry, we've kind of gone off track a little bit, haven't we? Uh, so I guess as I think it, it's just as much like you said, just as much as Australian society that we're looking at and, and, and our culture that we're looking at, if we're going to change the way that we view sport, the way we treat our sports men and women, um, the way we grow our young people, because I really feel that sport is such a, a wonderful space. It's, it's a vehicle to create some social change. The lessons we learn through sport, we can apply to life uh, and vice versa. The things we learn in life, we can apply to sport. But I think there's some really key things we can take away from, from our sport from a very young age that we can use in you know, all aspects of, of life from its, you know, different careers or socially and, and, and that kind of thing. I think. Yeah, I think it's, again, I think that's why I think performance is such an interesting thing because it cuts mm. across and business performance strategies work in sport and sports and work in business and parent strategies are very performance orientated. And Vern, you've said the same thing. I mean, this is what your whole research was about, is about the intrinsic nature of motivation and the idea that you've got to find it kind of within. It's got to be a choice to reach certain levels. You've got to have that passion. Is that right? Yeah, I think um, I think what I'd be talking about more is like optimal performance. So people who never reach that absolute you know, almost perfection that they can reach and, and, and be able to be functioning at their absolute max. Um, they're always fighting for that. So they always have, they develop mechanisms and strategies to continue to strive to get better. However, once you've reached that echelon, that top echelon, you've climbed Mount Everest, you've won championships, you've done things like that, and you've actually achieved everything you've wanted to achieve. All your goals. Well, what you thought were your goals, yeah, because we, we aim for that one, you know what I mean, um, rather than and seeing as a, as a process, as a journey, as your life, you actually see it as not. Once I get that, then I've made it. And then realize that you never made it because there was no making it in the first place. Um, but you're, you're performing. Oh, we've talked about this for years, isn't we? No outcome, only process. All process. Oh, I dig it, man. Yeah. But, but you, everyone's celebrating you as, as a greatest performer and that's your optimal performance. And then you, once you're the optimum, the best, like, how do I repeat that? And how do I repeat that? And that's what we we're talking about before saying that sometimes you can't repeat that. Sometimes you have an off day. Sometimes you lose. Sometimes the other team's actually better. Sometimes, whatever the reason is, you can't repeat that optimal performance and you keep searching it because you know it's there because you've had it. 
and it's addictive because once you're there, it's it's super. Well, I've heard like people like Ke- uh, Kieran Perkins, the swimmer. Yeah, they don't swim anymore. Mm-hmm. Yep. Once you've le- le- reached a level of performance through the water, to go back and just do laps and feel heavy in the water, it's it, they can't do it. And, and on top of that, you're so specialised into being an ultimate performer. It's really, really difficult to to accept anything less. And um, I mean, I've seen similar things in, um, I guess, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, you know, people come back from war zones who are just used to operating at the absolute maximum. You know, they're just doing this and they come back to normal society and they're like, okay, so now there's no guns, there's no noise, there's no, you know, hectic kind of world. I'm just chilled all the time. They can't operate because it's just not an optimal performance. And and similar thing with sports people is they, they, they're sitting down watching TV. They're talking with other people who have no idea what they've been through and they, the other people haven't pushed themselves through all these barriers and, and, and obstacles and, they're really mingling with regular humans and that don't understand um, the levels required to get to that ultimate performance. And there's no stories to share. There's no, you know, it's really difficult to sit back and, and, and talk about, you know, mowing the lawn when, when you've had to, you know, push your body through extreme pain. And I think that that isolation um, plus the thing that you don't really know how to replicate that on any other level because, you're going to have to start again. And if uh, optimum performance... So that's the idea that the, the optimum performance is so specialised that we lose contact with normality. Yeah, and uh, people and, and skills. So you think that would be a part of the thing? Absolutely. And I guess it, what it comes back to, like we were touching on earlier, it's about having that, that balance and that sense of identity outside of sport. I think that's what came up for me then. Yeah. So it's, it's an identity, isn't it? And if you think about it, you know, if, if, if you're going to get to that elite level, let's take it, let's take a swimmer. Let's take Kieran Perkins, for example, you're in the pool, you know, morning and night, every day of the week from, you know, what early teens. Yeah. yeah. So if that's, if that's your whole, that becomes your whole social experience, right? You don't get to. And you've got these Australian standards, the yep. impacts every two years, yep. the world, world championships, the standards, there's Olympics. You've got this rotating roster for decades. There's not much flexibility for you to have any kind of other identity or, or explore different parts of yourself outside of that when you're training at that level from that young. So when you get to the end of your career, uh, whether you've been successful or not, that's a really big drop off. That's a really big change. And a lot of athletes coming out saying, well, Hey, who am I? What am I supposed to do now? How do I fit back into society? And that, and that's what Kelly was saying before is that that's all um, grown by Australia's expectation of sporting athletes. So, so we go, okay, look how good you are. You know, um, Ian Thorpe, you know, you're amazing. You're the best swimmer of all time. All of a sudden you're not the best winner of all time because you got old or, you know, like you just lost someone's interest just taken or your record someone's and, better than you. Yeah. And then all of a sudden we're like, oh, who are you now? Oh, you're nothing. You used you, to you're, be. You're, you're used to be, yeah. And, and then, I think it's it's still continuing on now, even with the, the athletes that aren't perhaps achieving that same level. We've still got a bit of a, a, a hangover from those glory days. You know, if you're like myself, mid-30s, those early, late, late 90s, early 2000s was just a prime time to be a sports lover because we were fairly successful across the board. We had yeah. the Australian cricket team, the Wallabies at their peak. We had the swimmers, the, the swimmers you know, winning golds back to back here and there. Lady we had Hewitt. Rafter and, yeah. and Hewitt winning grand slams. Everywhere you looked, you know, even if you, you know, fell down on one space, there was always someone else who's going to be a world champion the next week, right? Um, now we're I not, didn't maybe even not realize quite. we're in a sporting hangover, aren't we? we? Are. Oh gosh. So are we, but Makes are we then sense. still holding our athletes to that same expectation? Do we still expect them to be world beaters and champions? And, you know, the, the big question that's coming up a lot is at what cost? I found it really interesting, you know, a couple of weeks ago, we had the Wallabies play here on the Gold Coast. Um, and there was that exchange between one of the fans and one of the players where, you know, they actually became a bit of push and shove between them. I did read about this. Yeah, yeah. And they were, you know, questioning about the, the, the passion and the heart to the game and that kind of stuff is, you know, I understand that some fans are frustrated about the lack of success that the Wallabies specifically are maybe having at the moment. But what was missed in that story, uh, well, some people may be aware, is that particular player who was targeted, he had lost a family member early in the week. He did passed away. So he's going through his own grief there. Uh, he's at the at the fence, you know, uh, greeting his family and, and and having a chat to his family. And the spectator actually come through and and pushed one of his family members aside, uh, which obviously quite upset him. So my point here is that the athletes that we have today, they 
they're not just an athlete. They're not just robots that, that come in and need to perform. You know, they're still whole people as well, right? They've got their own stuff going on. And we mentioned about, you know, our optimal performance on that day. Yes, the Wallabies lost. Yes, we're disappointed in that. But for this particular athlete, given the, the stress that he'd been under for the week, did he actually perform at the best he could have on that day? And it may not be his, his highest level that he could, but, you know, I think it's pretty impressive the fact that he even took the field. The disappointing thing now, though, unfortunately, is this particular player now is not going on tour for the for the South Africa and Argentina league. He's actually stepped away from the team, stepped away from the tour because of uh, you know multiple stresses and, and pressures that are on him. And I just think us as spectators and, and and a society, we have a responsibility here too. It's not just about the athletes getting themselves ready and and um, exploring other other avenues of themselves and having a strong identity. I think we need to be. Um, looking at, at that from the way as spectators and fans and coaches and even at the grassroots level. How can we, we, can we uh, to be devil's advocate? Can we afford to do that? Can we, are you guys suggesting that as, you know, a team or sports orientated psychologist that we would suggest that uh, performance doesn't matter? That uh, who you are as a human being is more important? Sorry, you, you you said performance as if that's uh, an outcome. Oh, sorry, I was playing. You yeah, talk about yeah, process. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm being confused. Of course, I'm taking on devil's advocate. No, it's not natural for me. So, yeah, well, if you're talking about you know winning, winning absolutely or losing absolutely, then yeah, I think that's a that's a problem because there's always going to be more losers than winners. And and the lessons we're teaching people is if you're not a winner, you're nothing. Yeah, you know I mean, like you're either winner and you're the greatest, or you're a loser and you're not worth anything. It's a waste of your time. It was never a waste of time. I mean, you can you can come second and do an absolutely outstanding job, and the other team could just be better. Yeah, yeah that you could just race somebody. If you come last and do an absolutely fantastic job. Well, beat your PB. Absolutely, and that's that's or what I'm, I'm very best. much into. Do your best on the day. Mm. Yeah, yeah. It's about those little achievements. It's about that application. I have found some research once that said that uh, they compared astronauts with explorers. And what they found is they had a very similar kind of psychological makeup. So the the explorer is walking along and all of a sudden his mate gets pulled down a crevice, dies, cuts a rope, goes down there, he pulls him up, he buries his mate, he deals with the crisis, sets up his tent, and then goes back to binding his walking sticks. The astronaut is uh, doing... Computer data, do, 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 and all of a sudden the, the 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 cockpit fills up with smoke. He deals with the problem. He deals with the emergency. But then five minutes later, he goes back to the, the data entry. What they found was that they had a, a the ability to deal with crisis and then go back and uh, process information and, and, and do routine the task. And I thought that was really interesting because I might be able to deal with uh, with crisis, but then I'm offline for a little while. I'm not coming back on to taking notes or doing my notes or making sure everything's you – know, do you know what I mean? I think that's a very interesting thing. And how how do we help sportsmen understand that movement between spaces? Yeah, well, I think that's um, definitely something that that's what you're looking into. Absolutely. Kelly, is that, yeah. is that so? Yeah. yeah. And I guess what I'm looking at is from a prevention point of view. So I think it starts right from those grassroots levels, from how do we help people feel – well adjusted. How do we feel like they do have that balance in life that they can overcome those adversities and that adversities actually, you know, don't have to be defining. They, they are something we work through, something we learn from. That's an ex- so it's a really resilient model you're kind of working with at the very beginning. You don't make the team. We're not saying, hey, the best kids don't get in the team. You know, you're not the best, you're not the best 13, you're on the bench. But that's a moment in your life where you can learn to become more resilient. It's it's the Michael Jordan not making the high school basketball team. And like I said, every little moment along the way is is, just another opportunity. It's it's another opportunity, another stepping stone. And you, again, it comes down to that, that choice of how you choose to to see that and accept that. I think though, um, what we, what would be even better uh, or, or complimentary to that is having a lot of mentors to reinforce that message. hundred percent. Um, I know that I've been lucky enough to work with some, um, athletes who have been through some adversity and some high pressure stuff. And if anything, uh, all I've offered them is, is perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, rather than they're in a moment, which is, is crucial to them, crucial to their performance, crucial to their identity and their sport. And, and it all seems like the world's, you know, coming down and, not, and, and I've been able to offer them perspective about, 
you know, getting through that moment, like that crisis that you're mentioning before, Chris, where the astronaut or the explorer, and then going back to the day-to-day um, skill acquisition of, of training and then realizing that this is just one moment, whereas investing in yourself, improving your skills um, and all those kind of things are going to allow for other moments. And um, I think that if that's a coaching message or a, or a mentoring message or a parenting message or somebody who has that relationship with the athlete or with anybody, then then you know that, hey, look, this too shall pass, you know, if you want to. You know, I quite, love it when you get Buddhist on me. Trying you know? to try remember what, what you'd say. Oh, yeah, 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 no, yeah. <laughs> things you fed into. You're my such mind. a sexy man when you do that. That's beautiful. <laughs> but yeah, I think that's it. I think that if um, you can have someone or, or people to reinforce those kind of messages, then you breathe and um, see what's next. Well, I'd have to respond with nothing changes, but the perspective of the observer burns been a favour of ours for a little while, hasn't it? Yes, but I mean, if that was ingrained into our sporting culture. But it's not about the outcome, it's about the process. Mm. Every moment, how you hit a tackling bag, how you broke, walk up for training, how you get through crisis, that the sport is really a space in which we learn how to be better human beings for life. Shifts. Mate, nailed it. Yeah? Yep, couldn't have said it better. Yeah, well, that's that's, that's what we, that's, sorry, as a psychologist, that's what I do at St. James. That's all I've done for eight years and, um, you know, because I did my master's, during when Alex had a kidney transplant staff and I did all that stuff, like my whole philosophy wasn't about winning. It was about how good could we be and then how can this, you know, shape the way you see yourselves and interact with the world. And um, in the end, you know, I've got no problem losing every game or losing regularly, which we do all, all year long. Um, lessons are learned, uh, teachable moments, um, support's given, adversity is provided. Uh, so these kids are constantly having to deal with e- challenges to their ego, challenges to their perceived sense of identity. You've had some challenges as a coach though, haven't you? Staffing issues. Oh, yeah. There's um, spaces uh, of pe- people, people disagreeing with your philosophical premise. Can I jump in just for a set for <laughs> yeah. answer that? The coach is a forgotten athlete too, right? Wow. Talk to me, Kelly. What do you mean by this? Coach is dealing with the same, well, same but, but also some different pressures, right? You've got your own identity as a coach. You've also got to answer to multiple stakeholders, yep. and that that could range multiple from multiple stakeholders. That can Jesus range from the, the, the from the athlete themselves to the the parent of the athlete, parent of the athlete, to the to the sponsor, to you know club chairmen or or school principals or whatever you're working. You know, coaches, CEOs, boards, yep. et cetera, et cetera. You name it. Yep. It's it's endless, right? And it's about also managing and supporting coaches to be well adjusted and, and to be able to. Um, feel secure in their space and, and, and to be able to navigate those challenges that come up. And just remember that stat that 90% of athletes are going back into coaching. So it's, it's just as important to, to be supporting those mentors or coaching people in coaching roles as it is as with the athletes too. It is too, but and I think there's something needs to be looked at into that in regards to, uh, you know, identity. I mean, how do we think we, you know, I think of that uh, Western Australia AFL star, with um, the Matty Cousins, is that Cousins. his name? Matty Cousins. How do we think we, uh, as a nation and as a as a sport loving community, I mean, he achieved high level perfection, he was renowned. But in order to do that, he needed to go and get wasted on a on a weekend. He needed that, you know, it's payoff. It's kind of uh, I've heard other athletes talk about this as well, and and you know, particularly some of the Olympians who have gone and reached you know, gold medal status, and the euphoria of, of winning, earning a gold medal, winning a gold medal after four, probably more years of, of training to get there, nothing else can really match it except perhaps for substance use. So in order to reach that same level of euphoria and, and, and excitement and buzz and thrill, that's the only thing that's matching it. So that's where some athletes are getting a little bit stuck and coming undone too. Yeah, it's it's. it's We're talking about some of our our highest level achievers, right? There's some people who we've we've had on that pedestal for a long time. CEOs as well. CEOs, you know, people people at top of the top. Like, there's uh, enough stories around to know that um, we all know there's a bit of cocaine going around the uh, logies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, A lot going on. That thrill, that that adulation of uh, being acclaimed, I guess, and and being, as I said, an optimal performer. And you're the best of the best. But I'm really interested, Kieran, because, you know, um, the approach that you're taking I think is fantastic. And 
you're actually having success for the team. You've you've won several state championships right on the back. Really, six years, yeah. I mean that that's a that's <laughs> yeah, a just that's a pretty just pretty just good record. Yeah, 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 absolutely. But obviously, <laughs> no you know, free that, that's, that's still working, right? Yeah, um, look, it 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 does. It works. Uh, I know it works. It's based in a lot of research. Um, it's 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 kind of the antithesis of the basketball model at the moment, which mm-hmm. is coached down. Um, it's competency, autonomy, and self-determination based, um, relatedness based, sorry. So, you know, it's all, it's all, there's all this theory behind it. Sure. And, um, but yeah, it's also not understood mm-hmm. and it's, um, early on very like, yeah, very early on, there was a lot of, um, opposition to it. I coached a state team and, and needless to say that trying to do that at a state team under 18 level, wasn't accepted very well, mm-hmm. uh, if at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, that team was able to have the best performance that group's ever had. Can I ask, why do you think that is? Why is it not accepted? I think that empowering kids to make choices in a high-pressure environment um, when the normal is on a basketball court for the coach to make decisions, make choices, and guide and direct um, is um, – it's just challenging to everybody. And uh, the comments that I got was that I wasn't doing enough. Uh, even though the kids, like the year before, they lost a 40 to Vic Metro. I mean, we lost by three. They lost to South Australia Metro by 40 as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we'd never been top four. Mm-hmm. Um, and we came top four, lost to Vic Metro by three. Um, you know, we, we were in the remainder gains, but really we were, we, we'd done our best, our best was to get there, and then we had nothing left, and and that might come down to coaching, uh, preparation, and stuff. But the kids performed, I think, their optimum. This is the best they'd ever done. But once we'd got that level, everyone was like, "Well, you could win it now," mm-hmm. because we got over that first hurdle. And and I was like, "Well, I don't know if we can win it. Like, like that was actually our best. Like doing what we just did, that was our best. Now let's see what everyone else has." Um, and you know, we played against th- that year. Uh, there was some very, very good players there who play for Australia and go to NBL and, and all these kind of things from sure. um, New South Wales and stuff. But, yeah, the, the feedback was really negative around it. Um, no one was really grateful about it, uh, even though the level of performance was a lot higher. And I think it was because I wasn't seen as doing enough mm-hmm. to manufacture an outcome uh, visibly. Mm-hmm. In coaches in basketball, the players were on the floor. You can control pretty much every sub on every whistle. I can yell every instruction. I can control every play if I wanted to. There's a lot of control around it. Yes, yeah. Empowering people um, is, is challenging. So that, that's my guess. Um, but, yeah, it was definitely a lot of adversity around it. Where would you go from there, Kelly? Oh, I'm hearing you. I, I, I think it's an interesting space and I guess it's uh, um, when, does it, when does it become about the athlete and when does it stop becoming about them, talking about empowering them? I think that's a question to ask. Uh, that's, uh, the direction I would have gone is – how did that make you feel, Burn? How did, how did you go? How did your own resilience deal with? Hey, I put in a really good job, performed better than we were supposed to. Yeah. We've hit peak. It's a beautiful thing. I've created this fucking masterpiece, and you're slacking me off, man. Got, got fired. Got fired as the coach. <laughs> got fired. <laughs> Pretty much didn't get a second go. I was told that I wasn't. Uh, yeah, wasn't wasn't what they wanted. How did you? Apply these methods to that yeah. smackdown. I knew I was right. Wow. I knew I was right. So, but what I did is I started a little program at St. James College. We had two athletes. I turned up at 6 a.m. every morning and said, it's not compulsory. Come if you want. I'll be there every morning. Turned up every morning for a year and, and afternoon as well. So if they wanted to be there, they could be there. Those two athletes who started turning up, then they realized that, hey, this is not too bad. Someone's actually got some interest in us. And they, they told their friends and they told their friends. And and oh. so I just created my little. You just said it right there because I think a lot of <laughs> kids' sports and elite, uh, you know, wanting to achieve um, at an elite level is about attention. I just want to be loved. And mum and dad love me when I win a medal. Mum and dad love me when I go. So I had the uh, my niece's 21st the other day and uh, my sister's friend had a high-performance swimmer child and she's moved away. But I think the Olympic trials type of thing, but she actually openly said, oh, I don't get that. My oh, mum doesn't care about me. And funnily, but at the same time with a meeting of, um, yeah, I don't get as much love or attention from mum because I'm not that performer anymore. I've walked away from. Yeah, having that secure 
base, that secure environment where you feel safe and loved and nurtured is going to foster and facilitate that that performance growth, that that well-being and that well-rounded human being. Yeah, yeah and it's about that attention to detail and performance at every ever, every aspect of life. If the professional for, uh, footballer that, that, that that's retired could find just as much impassion and interest in getting his lawn right. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, or yeah. reading a book or conv- all those skills I've learnt, how do I trans- that, transform that into or transmute that into my next passion or my next thing? I think that's where – because the skill base hasn't gone. Absolutely. I've learnt kick a goal. I've, I've developed a process and a ritual. Now I can move that to – Something else. Anything else. A love life, a uh, parent, uh, you know, a degree, whatever it is. That's why I say, you know, sport's a great place to learn those because it's you have that structure there and you can start to apply what you've learned there into other areas of your life as well. Which ironically is kind of where sport was. Yeah. We were producing. Absolutely. In a, in a managed way, um, you know, warriors or, or community or a sense of spirit for the for the community. There was a bigger picture to that play. Mm. I think that that's that's the thing that we we lose as well is once you become an optimal performer, um, often you go away from that relatedness or that community sense, and and so you're not supported by a whole group of people who love you for who you are, not just what you've done, but for who you actually are. And um, I think one of the greatest benefits of what I've been able to do because I did it that way was that we had you know over 150 people storm the floor from each of the grades that had come previously. So the community, the people come back to watch, you know, they're just like, they're celebrating what everyone's achieving because it's all of us. It's a family thing. And I think that, and that was always the goal. And hopefully after, you know, if we can do that for another 10 years or so, 20 years, that'd be amazing. That's special. Because people, their kids are coming back into it and everyone knows what it's about. But I think that when we talk about athletes, uh, you know, having those mental health disorders or, or some sort of issues around it after the careers, it's because... They feel isolated. And Lauren Jackson spoke about this at length, you know. Mm. Um, everyone loved me when they needed me and wanted me, but then when I was done, then everyone sort of disappeared and I was still standing there. Where is the community? Where is the love? Where Where is this relatedness to the village that I thought I had and now magically is gone pretty much instantly? Where do I belong now? Um, if we don't have, if we have that, then we're okay. Who am I? Beautiful. Wow. All right. So uh, fascinating conversation, guys. Optima, performance. How do you, I'd like to finish off with each of us talking about how we utilize these skills we've learned along the way to, in our own lives. Who wants to take it away? Uh, I guess just to go full circle where we started from, talking about my personal experiences, I felt like I was very much given that supportive home environment uh, to explore what I, whatever I wanted to do. Uh, but I was always encouraged to whatever I do, you know, just do my best. doesn't matter what the end result is, just do your best on the day. So for me, um, as a dad, as a member of society, as a psychologist, as someone who's, you know, working with athletes, um, I'd like everyone to feel like they can be who they want. They have opportunities to to be whoever they like in any different sort of situation. They don't have to pigeonhole themselves or, or just focus on, the one thing or the one career. Um, I'd like to provide opportunity and balance for people to spread their wings to to explore different parts of themselves. Beautiful, beautiful. And part of that process, and I think that is the idea that you've got to deconstruct why I'm doing this. If it's just in train, if your parents telling you you need to do it, and everyone is telling you, you need to do it, and there isn't this fully, oh, I'm really committed to this. You're never going to perform at that level. Do yeah. you? you actually have to strip back. Mm-hmm. And I don't think psychology. Well, I don't think a lot of coaching aims for that strip back to start with. Okay, why are you here? What is it you want to achieve? What do you, you want to become? How is this going to take you where you need to go in your life? And if kids have that understanding that this is a process, then you start to build those, those uh, you know, those um, foundations. Beautiful. Yeah, I kind of feel Beautiful. that. Beautiful. What do you got, Ben? Um, oh, just a classic, Chris, classic uh, one person at a time. Oh, you nice, know, I think nice. that uh, we talked about this uh, 20 years ago and just um, if – if I can do anything, it's giving one person that, like whoever it is at the time, you know, the moment, the relatedness, the relationship, have a chat and um, be able to connect with them and tune in with them in that moment. And, and if I can do that, then I think that um, it also reminds me about how I want to live my life. Um, 
And so your optimum performance is about connection and attunement. Remembering, yeah. Remembering. So, yeah, remembering to do that rather mm-hmm. than just, you know, talking about me or putting myself on someone else. It's actually about, okay, let's find where we are meeting. How many right times now. as therapists do we come into that space where this isn't about some bullshit theory, this is about opening up and truly connecting with another human being? Absolutely. Yeah, okay. I had uh, an ex- interesting experience when I was at uni and I was doing the, the sociology of religion. Uh, it was because I did a lot of sociology, loved a bit of sos. Um, and we're talking about heroes. I think it was uh, Joseph um, Campbell and the mythology of, you know, being a hero. And we had this definition of what a hero was and he had a very clear picture of it. You know, someone that, you know, achieves or becomes a winner or wins the grand final with a dropout. This is your hero. And I was saying, hey, my 18-month-old daughter who had to coordinate her one hand up, one down, down. She climbed a, a length of steps that morning. And I was saying, she's a hero. She's overcome so many barriers. She's had a goal. She worked for it. She did step by step. She wasn't going to let those steps beat her. She got up to the top and had a bit of a smile. And I just remember saying, I think that's what a hero is. And he was telling me, that's not a hero. <laughs> do, do you know what I mean? I know. And, and I kind of think this is what we're talking about in regards to sportsmen. It's about the real hero is that grind and effort and work and hard 10 years you've done. That's what makes you the hero, not kicking that field goal. And sometimes that circumstance doesn't allow that field goal to occur. But if you've done everything you could to put yourself in position, then you, you are a success. Do you know what I mean? And I think about those Olympic athletes who just get, or those just miss out on the qualification and trying just as hard, put in 15 years of their life, but don't quite crack the grade. Yeah. Successful. Wow. Fascinating guys. Uh, That's been a great journey. So uh, we're at the end. Um, As I'm the only one that shared the Guinness, I didn't have three, but I'm thinking about it. Um, I'd have to say that, uh, where am I? I'm uh, with my father. Maybe this is a dream for the future. And uh, Parramatta have finally got into the grand final. And I'm in a position enough to say, Dad, I've bought some tickets. We're in the grand final. We've got some good seats. And I'm sitting there having a beer, and I really don't care who wins the grand final. But my dad, after 60 years of celebrating uh, Parramatta, wants them to win. And I could sit there and rejoice in his passion and commitment and love for that game because that represents who he is. But at the end of the day, we're not going to cause the right, we're going to walk away. But just to share that moment of anticipation with my father would be a beautiful moment. So if you had drunk the big, we do this by giving a bit of an image, a bit of a bit of a, an idea of where they would take us. And, I, and I've just sunk back a Guinness. And my dad wouldn't drink Guinness. I could buy him one, but he drinks mid-strength. So he ain't going to try anything new. He doesn't watch AFL. He watches football. <laughs> okay? So my dad's a very particular guy, but a beautiful man. What do you got? Um, I don't know. Kelly. I, 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 I'll, I'll share. I'll jump in. Uh, look, the, the Guinness for me reminds me of the Irish pub. Oh. I don't think I've – had a, a drunk Guinness outside of an Irish pub ever. No. Uh, but for me, uh, usually when I'm in an Irish pub, it's it's to watch the Wallabies play Ireland, particularly. Um, and for me, it's it, the image that I've got is, you know, a group of blokes somewhere in gold, somewhere in green. Um, there's that camaraderie. There's that banter. There's It's a happy place. And regardless of the result of the outcome of the game, the memory of the night is that being together of, of um, celebrating sport bringing different cultures different people together and, and just you know in, in enjoying that moment the competition the anticipation the excitement the joy the joy of the moment the joy ah guinness that's truly an ad right there if you want to come as sponsors we're looking <laughs> All right. I, I, I do have one chris it uh it's us sitting in townsville Ooh. uh back in the day you drinking beers me uh having a water you coming back uh, smiling, 40-degree heat, uh, just watching people watching, having chats about... Uh, David Bohm. David Bohm. Uh, I can't even <laughs> pronounce the other guy's name. No, neither can I. Um, but, yeah, just talking about people and, and, and really, you know, there's there's sport on every every TV screen and 
um, everyone's happy, having a laugh and uh, a lot of friendship and a lot of, you know, loving those uh, pubs in Townsville and just relaxing and sort of feeling like, um, yeah, life is good. Beautiful. We'll take it away with a tip. That's um, And I remember those days very well, Master Byrne. Um, who's going to win? Connor or Gibbard? The Russian, the Russian or the Irish, he's, he's going to hit the wrestler or the striker. Statistically, the wrestler should outperform, but Connor, you know, clips people. What do you think? You got a bet? I, I'll be honest, I don't follow the UFC all that much. No, no, what's, um, what's your feel? I'm, I'm, I'm feeling the Russian, actually. Feeling the Russian's going to take him down and make it a very uncomfortable evening. That's probably what should happen. Yeah, I'd like to go with the Russian. Oh, the Russian. All right. I, I believe in a dream. <laughs> <laughs> I believe in a in a little clip and we just go, wow, he's done it again. So great to see you guys. Thanks for coming in uh, to our performance and uh, we'll, uh, might do this again with the three psychologists in a room, eh? Like it. Peace and love. See you around. Thank you. first